I want to begin by reading you the words of Juliette LaRoche, Titanic survivor. When the collision happened, there was terrible panic. People were pushing in a hurry to get off the boat. Suddenly, I felt that they were pulling my older daughter away from me, my little Simone. I saw her thrown to a lifeboat suspended above the abyss. My child, I yelled, my child. It is my child that was taken away. But right at that instant, I felt someone grabbing me as well. A pair of hands took me and threw me into emptiness. I found myself in a lifeboat next to my little Simone. And up there on the deck in the middle of the scramble, I glimpsed my husband. Arms extended above the crowd. He was holding our younger girl whom he was trying to protect against the push. He was struggling against the sailors, showing them the little girl and trying to make them understand that she was separated from me, her mother. At last, someone grabbed our little Louise from my husband's hands and soon she was in my arms. Then the lifeboat was once and for all lowered into the sea. I hardly had time to bid my husband a final farewell. I heard his voice above the rumble yelling, see you soon, darling. There will be space for everyone, don't worry. In the lifeboats, take care of our girls. See you soon. And the lifeboat moved away. Juliet and her husband, Joseph, had been married for four years and in love for six years. She was from France, the daughter of a wine cellar, and she was white. Joseph, born and raised in Haiti, moved to France on his own at age 15 to further his education. He was the only documented Black man on board Titanic. Not necessarily a cross-class romance, but it was an interracial relationship in an era when interracial marriage was quite literally still outlawed in some places, including many states in the U.S. It's not always back to the movie for me, I promise, I I promise. But in this case, I couldn't help but think, especially having just come off of the series that I did, that we fantasize about Jack and Rose in the movie, about those harrowing moments of couples being ripped apart. And here is a real moment. But in this case, Juliet could and would not have fathomed jumping back on a sinking ship because of her two tiny daughters. This moment is more gut-wrenching than anything in a movie. I'm LA Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is barely a goodbye, the story of Joseph LaRoche. Before I tell you about Joseph LaRoche's life, let's lay bare the why of this episode. As the sole Black person aboard the Titanic, though to be clear, not African-American, he's not African-American, but of African descent, LaRoche's legacy has in some ways been to bear the weight of the entire 
story of race and the ship, and particularly since his story seems to have been discovered about 20, 25 years ago. I want to be clear. <laughs> That's not what I'm I'm doing here. His family's memory and legacy are so much more than just that factoid. To be transparent, though, I did want to do this episode in honor of celebrating Black History Month. I didn't know much about LaRoche when I sat down with that intention. And what I found is just so much more than I expected, which is typically what seems to happen with a lot of these episodes. And I mean that in a great way. An academic paper from a few years back tackled James Cameron's film and whiteness and posited that the cross-class romance between Jack and Rose was a sort of stand-in for a cross-race romance. This same scholar spent the whole article referring to Jack Dawson as an Irish immigrant, which leads one to believe whether he even saw the movie. But I bring this up because I think writing Titanic as only a class story, claiming that class stands in for race somehow in the historical narrative of Titanic because of a lack of racial dynamics aboard, is ignoring the ways Titanic's rise and fall does interact directly with questions and themes of race, and it ignores the questions and struggles involving race that were definitely on board. And I'll include James Cameron in my critique there, even. Creators of Titanic projects, writers, they use class as the political element, but there's no excuse for not also examining Titanic and race. Race was there, is there, and race is a construct. So a conversation about race is also a conversation about identity, culture, otherness, caste, and it's crucial. Race is inherent in a conversation about ethnicity and nationality as well because racial identity is a part of cultural identity. Now, I am not an expert on this part of the conversation in an academic sense. I have not read extensively on the history of of terminologies, of race. So let me lay bare my weaknesses right there. But on Titanic, what we call broad terms of race and ethnicity were most certainly present. The ship itself was openly heralded by its creators as an Anglo-Saxon triumph, thereby othering just in the process of its building. There were passengers from literally all over the world, from the U.S. and Britain and France and Germany, but also Syria, Portugal, Bulgaria, China, Japan. Harold Lowe, as you may recall, had to retract comments he made at the U.S. Senate hearings in which he stated that his lifeboat had been rushed by a sort of mob of Italians. Another quote, I saw it, um, the word Latins instead of Italians. But he was implying that the passengers who lost their heads and had been non-white, non-American, were the ones who were responsible for the mob. And Actually, and I didn't know this, I read recently, Italian was used as a catch-all term, some researchers believe, for all darker-skinned passengers on a ship 
like Titanic. As historian Stephen Beale has pointed out, the language in some of the accounts and reports after the disaster are also incredibly racialized. Reports of, quote, two Chinamen shot down like dogs, or Lowe saying that he saw so many, quote, as I mentioned, Latin people glaring, and this is a quote as well, quote, glaring more or less like beasts. We cannot ignore how much the idea of the noble, civilized man on Titanic is connected to whiteness. And you look through the Senate hearings, the newspapers, the firsthand accounts. I'm not even saying read the monographs about Titanic. I'm saying go back to the original sources on your own. And these quotes are there. Quote, cowards are described as either having dressed in women's clothing, and we've talked about that, or as, quote, Italian or, quote, Japanese or, quote, Armenian. Not any other identifier mentioned in these cases often, just the notation that someone non-white had escaped, so they must have been doing something untoward to do so, or that they were last seen on the decks doing something untoward. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty despicable way in which it was reported on in 1912, and it's disheartening that not enough has been done to explore that and sort of crack that narrative open. And in terms of African-American culture and Titanic, there's actually not no connections. Through music and oral history tradition, Black Americans processed the disaster and created their own connections to it, largely through the blues. All that to say, there is a myth that race is absent from Titanic, and it's just not true. And the LaRoche family cannot be expected to bear the responsibility of all of its analyses. I'm telling LaRoche's story because we do need to talk about the stories of Titanic's non-white passengers. I'm also telling LaRoche's story because it's an epic story, one that encapsulates dramatic upheavals in political history, the history of race, colonization, the history of education, and very importantly, his is a love story that, quite honestly, like I said in the opening, could be a movie all its own. Also, a quick note on sources. By far, my biggest source for this episode was a book called Black Man on the Titanic. It was written by a journalist and writer named Serge Bilay. I, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I, I tried to look online and, and figure that out, and I, I hope I am. I apologize if I am not, but I want to really extend a huge thank you to him for researching and writing about LaRoche so extensively and for laying out Haitian history in an accessible way, which <laughs> Haitian history, as you're about to see, is, is quite complicated. Joseph LaRoche was born on May 26th, 1886, in the city of Cap Haitien, on the north end of the island. And if you kind of, you, know, you should probably just go look at a map, <laughs> but just to remind you kind of where Haiti is situated on a map of the world, um, it is to the east of Cuba and Jamaica and south of the Bahamas and the Turks and Caicos. It occupies the western three-eighths of the island that is shared with the Dominican Republic. Haiti is about the size of Maryland, just for reference. And I'm going to give you the briefest of summaries of Haiti's history so you can visualize Joseph's story within it. But keep in mind that this is cursory at best. Joseph's life is going to intersect with a lot of important shifts in Haitian history, but it's impossible for me to cover all of the nation's complex history in this 
episode. When Columbus landed on the island of Hispaniola in December 1492 with three large ships, he found a kingdom ruled by a Taino Indian chief, T-A-I-N-O. Again, I hope I'm pronouncing things correctly. I really am trying my best. When one of the ships, the Santa Maria, one of Columbus's ships, oh, we all learn about that in elementary school, or I guess... Hopefully we don't anymore, not in the same way at least. Um, When one of the ships sank just off the coast, the Native Americans of Haiti aided the crew and built together a fort with the ship's wood, with the fallen ship's wood. Columbus left behind 40-something sailors on the island. The sailors would commit so many abuses against the natives, according to Belay, that their, quote, fed-up hosts slaughtered them. After the French arrived in the 17th century to continue European exploration and absolutely exploitation, the indigenous population was largely exterminated. As a result, Africans, primarily from West Africa, were imported as slave labor to produce raw goods for international trade and commerce. During the slave trade, at least 10 ships disappeared off the coast to note, resulting in the loss of hundreds, perhaps thousands of lives. During the height of slavery, some in bondage in Haiti would choose to end their own lives rather than face life as a slave. Considered France's richest colony in the 18th century, created literally on the backs of slave labor, Haiti was known as, quote, the Pearl of the Antilles. But resisting their exploitation, Haitians revolted against the French. And that was from 1791 to 1804. After the Haitian revolt started in 1791, many St. Domingans eventually settled in Louisiana, And I did not know this. The Louisiana Purchase was a direct consequence of the Haitian Revolt. This land deal doubled the size of the United States. I think Louisiana Purchase is something we'd get in in our basic social studies classes in the U.S. as well. So you may may know a little bit about it. But um, yes, this land deal doubled the size of the U.S., adding um, in whole or part Louisiana, Arkansas, Nebraska, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Minnesota, the Dakotas, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana. One of the most important outcomes of the revolution in Haiti was that it forced Napoleon Bonaparte to sell Louisiana to the United States in 1803. When the Haitians took their independence fully in 1804, they changed their name, which had been given to them by, and I hope this has been made clear, France France was, you know, the French were their colonizers, and they had given the name of Saint-Domingue, so the Haitians changed the name from Saint-Domingue to Haiti, which had been a native, a name of of native origins. So before January of 2010, when, and you, you probably know this, I hope you know this, a catastrophic earthquake and and Haiti has has had other historic earthquakes in its past as well. It's happens there quite a bit, but a horrific earthquake occurred in January of 2010. They're killing an estimated 300,000 people, injured over 200,000 and left about one and a half million people without a home. 
So before then, it was estimated that about 3 million people lived in the capital city of Port-au-Prince. Haiti has a complex, a rich, a fascinating, and a tumultuous culture and history with stories of resistance and revolution and instability. But also Haiti is known for its resilience. Haiti is the first Black Republic and the second independent country in the Western Hemisphere. As the first Black independent country with this story of a slave revolt that was actually successful, Haiti's story became really an inspiration for African Americans in the United States during the 19th century, during the period of enslavement in America. And like France, the United States did not recognize Haiti's independence until 1862. I also did not know that. And this was because, shocking, right? And I hope the sarcasm comes through there. White Americans worried that Haiti's existence and their revolution, you know, literally and figuratively would challenge the slave-driven economy in the U.S. Cap Haitian, and it's Cap, C-A-P hyphen Haitian, Cap Haitian, where Joseph is born to a single mother in 1886, served as the capital before Port-au-Prince eventually prevailed in terms of trade and activity. It was founded in the 1670s and originally called Cap Francois and was renowned as the, quote, Paris of the Antilles for its culture and its stunning architecture. It was the site of slave uprisings in the 1790s, as I just spoke about, and it was devastated by troops, but later rebuilt. In the 1880s, when Joseph is born, it was a dynamic and lively place. At its commercial port, ships left the island weighted down with coffee, cocoa, wood, cotton, sugar, tortoise shells, and something called the root of vetiver, which I didn't know about, which is a plant that produces an essence sought after by perfume makers. Joseph's mom, Uzili, 24 at the time, was part of this system, and she was a successful part of it, and in many ways, a self-made part of it. Joseph's father refused to acknowledge paternity when he was born, so his mother gave him her name, LaRoche, and paid for every bit of their livelihood through her work as a speculator. She had a valuable government license that allowed her to acquire agricultural commodities, and she sold coffee at her shop on Rue 8, which housed massive scales to weigh all the bags, and there she sold to European buyers, French buyers, German buyers, to local enterprises, but also to these huge exporters. It's complicated, (laughs) but uh, basically... Uzili sat at one end of a very labyrinth-like, from what I can gather, network of middlemen and women in the coffee trade, which often apparently resulted in producers not making much money. But from what I read about her, she preferred to get the coffee directly from the source. Cap Haitian was also called Le Cap. And so that's how I'm going to refer to it from this point on. It's easier, and I, I don't want to spend the whole episode... Um, mispronouncing 
I, I worry, I, you know, I think I've said this before. Um, one of my great fears is mispronouncing place names or people's names. I think it's so disrespectful and I'm trying my best here. Uh, but I, again, I do apologize if I'm getting anything wrong. So I'm going to refer to the city as Le Cap. So Joseph grew up with his mother in a beautiful home there, served by a maid, quiet as a boy, but apparently competitive. He played marbles with his friends until his eyes were tired and sore. Despite living in a place that had seen so much upheaval and would continue to, Joseph's childhood was rather innocent by all accounts, shielded due to his mother's attention and care and her wealth from her business. He was enmeshed in the culture of Haiti as well, though, which, and I'm just giving you the facts here, um, included, for one, attending cockfights in open-air arenas, a big touchpoint in social culture there. He also went to Saturday storytelling evenings. Storytelling plays a huge role in Haitian culture. Master storytellers use music and the stories and those two become inseparable, basically. And as a child like Joseph saw it in the audience. It it was their form of theater. It was a huge center of their culture and it encapsulated every part of Haitian identity, you know, from religion to folklore to just daily customs and life. His was a seemingly tranquil childhood overall, though His daily life was often touched by tragedy, I think in a place like Haiti that was unavoidable, including at home the death by suicide of one of Yuzali's brothers and one of her nephews, and on a broader local scale, continuing political changes. Haitians had won their independence after these excruciating series of battles. And remember, they had won it in 1804. But to maintain peace with France, ironically, they had gone into debt with Paris banks. And, and gosh, this is oversimplifying it, by the way, definitely. Part of the new loans that they took out ended up in the pockets of questionable politicians. So that's part of it. Poverty was and is rampant in Haiti. At the time that Joseph was protected in his enclave in Le Cap, you know, going to school and playing marbles, most Haitian children actually went without basic necessities and without education. So I wanted to make sure to point out that the LaRoche story is not necessarily representative of life in Haiti at the time. Joseph was teased at school for being a LaRoche. His grandfather, his mother's father, was... (laughs) let's say, genetically prolific. Uh, Henry LaRoche had, at the best estimates, about 30 children before he died in 1876, among them, obviously, usually, and about 60 grandkids. (laughs) LaRoche's were everywhere on the island, and this meant Joseph was related to a lot of people around him. Joseph's grandmother, named Louisette, but whom he affectionately called Lysatine, Lizatine worked as an ironer, walking miles each day to pick up loads of linens from Le Cap families. She told Joseph the stories of the LaRoche family, how Joseph's great-grandfather was white, a soldier stationed on the north of the island, that he'd fallen in love with a free woman of color. Interracial relationships were woven into the fabric of Haiti, largely, of course, because of its life as a colony can't forget that, and its position as a port of trade and as a port that received human beings as cargo during 
the slave trade. And just as in the American South, which we'll talk about in a few weeks when I do my special episodes on the shipwreck of the Clotilda, slave culture is Haitian culture. And it's crucial to talk about how it's woven into the history of a place. Joseph rarely saw his father, a man named Raoul Auguste, who also worked as a speculator. He bought coffee, cocoa, and bitter orange peel from farmers and sold them to, among other large manufacturers, the famous liqueur maker, Grand Marnier. Raoul had refused to recognize his paternity to Joseph. This was common in Haiti at the time. Joseph's own grandfather had not, for his mother, usually for many years of her early life. Joseph's family contained powerful and influential people. It's important to note. The husband of a beloved cousin, Josephine Laroche, who was a man named Cincinnatus Leconte, was the grandson of Jean-Jacques Dessalines, the father of independence, who had led the final fatal blow against the French army in 1804. Leconte studied in Germany, operated a bakery, operated a brickmaker's operation, entered the government in the 1890s, and would eventually be elected president of the republic. But it gets complicated. Dessalines, who enacted great violence against remaining French on the island in 1804, just, you know, it has to be said to, to share every, every, you know, I always say elbows and knees, and you probably get sick of hearing about it, but I think that's such a good way to describe how you have to show every side of kind of what's trying to, you know, make its way out of the box in in a historical narrative. You have to look in every dark corner of it. And I just always try to make a concerted effort to do that. So he, Dessalines, was murdered by people inside his own circle. And the country segmented into North and South. Sound familiar? Lines drawn along racial demarcations. The North run by a Black leader who would become known as King Christophe, crowned by a French archbishop. So see, it gets really complicated. Joseph LaRoche's grandfather, Henry, was this king's shoemaker. So it's complicated to say the least, even within Joseph's own family. But the main takeaway is that when Joseph grew up, where he grew up, It was a place in constant flux, in a constant state of power shifting, and his family was often at the core of the upheaval and these shifts. Ships that stopped in Le Cap were huge freight ships that had been, for some, remodeled to also hold passengers. The trip from New York to Haiti at this point could still take something like 70 days on the water, and from Haiti to Europe, almost 90 days. Think about it. (laughs) In 20 years, Titanic would start its crossing from Europe to New York on a planned route of just seven days, and they were trying to make it quicker. Joseph would soon leave on one of these ships from Le Cap. His mother had saved meticulously for him to go study in France, which was a really common scenario for Le Cap boys of a certain amount of wealth once they hit their early teen years. Joseph, like other young men in Haiti, had just, I mean, it's not surprising, had dreams of living in France. They'd heard so much about it. And it's odd, given that France had been the country's captor, essentially, but 
New France was an allure. It was sophisticated. It was modern. His own uncle, a man named Nemour Auguste, had gone to Paris and attended the medical school of Paris, and he had returned to Le Cap as a lauded medical practitioner. Joseph's education on the island had been Catholic, and it would continue to, to be so when he goes to France. Religion was part of that cultural fabric in Le Cap, woven tight into it, into home, school, medical spaces. The hospice, the local hospice, was run by a group of nuns and overseen by a man known as His Grace Kersuzan. Uh, that is K-E-R-S-U-Z-A-N. I always like to spell out names I have trouble pronouncing in case you want to look them up and correct me and help me, or if you ever just want to do further research and you need these names for... Yeah, just typing into a search engine. So he was a Breton who arrived in Cap in 1883. He was an austere man who had earned the respect of many residents of Le Cap, including Joseph's mother. And it was actually Care Suzanne who would accompany Joseph across the ocean in 1901. He regularly went back to Europe to recruit priests and missionaries for Haiti. Um, This is a whole nother element worth studying and I don't have time to cover, but yellow fever claimed many of the Europeans who came over to serve in Haiti. Uh, By 1896, 177 of 272, um, I believe those were clergy uh, that had come over, had died. From the deck, Joseph waved to his mother. I could not find the name of the ship that he was on. And he waved to his grandmother as well. As Bile writes, he watched them turn to specks on the horizon. He left all he'd ever known, this small island, his entire world. He shared a cabin with Care Suzanne and wandered the ship for 83 days on his way to essentially a new life in France. 83 days, <laughs> and he's 15 years old. The bishop did only two things, apparently, prayed and read his Bible. And Joseph did plenty of that himself, but 83 days. He spent his whole life by the sea, but never really on it. And now that was all that surrounded him was ocean. As far as I can tell from my research, it would be the first and the only time that Joseph would be at sea, at least on a large passenger ship, prior to boarding Titanic. Joseph was apparently shocked at how little culture shock he experienced upon arriving in France, having heard so much about it from friends and all these family members that were educated there and came back. Though he was alarmed and excited, or some combination of both probably, to see and ride on a train. In Beauvais, France, Care Suzanne essentially dropped Joseph off at his new school called Les Institutions du Saint-Esprit, home to a notoriously rigorous collective discipline with periods of enforced silence and rigid, (laughs) beyond rigid schedules. Think um, up at 5 a.m., daily visits to a physician. I don't understand that. I guess just like checking weight and blood pressure and things like that. Uh, the time you is that you brush your teeth is dictated to you. How you comb your hair is dictated to you. Lessons from sunup to sundown. Mass every day. 
Joseph lived there in a dormitory. It was nice with clean lines and it was immaculately kept, but it was uniform with rows of beds 50 to a dorm. Bouvet, where the school set, was larger than Le Cap, but small compared to Paris, definitely. Perhaps where Joseph had an had dreamt of living instead. And he actually had an uncle that lived in Paris. So he was a little confused as to why he didn't go to Paris. Beauvais was a working class town in many ways. Joseph apparently asked his mother at some point why she'd chosen it. And she replied that it was a quote, human sized town. It reminded him of Le Cap actually, except for one major difference, of course. He was the only black student. Other students whispered about him, inquired about it, but not necessarily maliciously. This was an elite school. The tuition for boarders was not cheap. So in terms of class, there was definitely a connecting bridge, but his race would have definitely been a thing, at least that people spoke about behind closed doors. Joseph had left a country where most people looked like him, and he was thrust into a place where nobody did. There was a movement of school reform in France at this time, an effort to modernize the education system through secularization. So Joseph actually ended up trading the political unease back home for some actually right within his school, going on between clergy and public powers. And for a time, it seemed as though the school where priests and religious figures taught might be shut down. There was this long period of limbo. But Joseph focused on his work. In the summers, he and fellow boarders who, you know, they obviously could not go home because to these faraway lands where some of the boarders were from, like him, because the round trip would take the entire summer break. So they traveled about, notably in the Picardy region. Joseph got to tour the home of Alexander Dumas, known as the most Haitian of the French. He had been born in 1802 there. Dumas's father had been born in Saint-Domingue to an enslaved Black mother, actually, and a penniless colonist, but climbed the ranks in the army and returned to France the year before. Alexander was born. Usually used to read Joseph from the Count of Monte Cristo as a child. So this was, I would bet, a balm to homesickness. On Fridays, the eldest students of the school visited poverty-stricken residents alongside the brothers of St. Vincent de Paul. Belay points out in his book that, quote, the picture of a young Haitian sent every week to the bedside of destitute Frenchmen could seem paradoxical today, considering the situation in Port-au-Prince. That's end quote. But he goes on to point out at, at the time, it wouldn't have been strange at all. Joseph was an other through the color of his skin in many ways, but he was marked by the school as wealthy. At some point in 1903, Joseph's father sent a telegram announcing that he was finally, after 17 years at this point, prepared to recognize paternity and grant his last name, and that would have been Auguste, to his son. Joseph declined, ever loyal to his mother, who he hadn't seen in two years at this point. His connection to the LaRoche lineage was palpable, meaningful. He wasn't going to give that up. In November that year, the Minister of the Interior and for Religious Affairs ordered all priests teaching at Joseph's school to leave. The limbo was over and 
had not gone in their favor, but the school had foreseen this happening and they had new staff ready. The spirit of the religious nature of the school remained. Of course, that wouldn't be easily erased in its students who had literally lived there for years. So in December of 1903, Joseph LaRoche graduated singing, undoubtedly with passion, these lines. Soon away from these tranquil shores, scattered at the discretion of the storms, in the middle of raging waters, remember the Holy Spirit. From the heavens in the dark night, he will come down, dispersing darkness, giving us back hope and peace in the happy days of Beauvais. Joseph stayed in Beauvais, though. He didn't leave. He attended the Institute Agricole to begin training in agronomic engineering, mastering inorganic chemistry, geometry, physics, the natural sciences. Joseph was, <laughs> I hope it goes without saying, I hope it's been evident already to this point. He was incredibly brilliant and a masterful student. Training there was three years with a theoretical element in the classroom and a practical one on local farms. He would also study architecture and agricultural law. <laughs> Just seems like a lot. Uh, two years later, Joseph was taking English classes in a Paris suburb when he met a man named Maurice Lafargue, who invited him home for lunch in Villejuif where he met and was instantaneously enamored of Maurice's sister, Juliette, who, from what I can gather, was only 16 at the time. I have to be honest, I'm not quite sure what the genealogy of these sources are. A lot of what I read about the LaRoches wasn't footnoted. I say this with complete 100% respect for Belay's work, but his book is not even footnoted. Uh, there are sources listed, but it's not clear in any given paragraph which source is being quoted. So, you know, <laughs> every single article, blog, book chapter I read Seems to take a little bit of liberty here and there about these first interactions, but they all 100% communicate that it seems to have been love at first sight for Joseph and Juliet. Joseph was prepping to defend his thesis and had to focus, but the pair agreed fervently to write to one another, which they did a lot. On his defense day, Joseph achieved a perfect score unshockingly, he called his mother, who wept on the telephone. His next move was crucial in his development as not just a student, but as a person. He audited classes at an industrial school in Lille, which was larger, more populous than Bouvet, modern, modern. Modern is the key here. I think this is a key, as I was studying Joseph and reading so much about him, I think this is a key point in his life, which isn't surprising because I think, you know, times change, people don't. And I think the early 20s, because at this point he would have been in his early 20s, in your early 20s is where you discover so much about who you want to be as a person, 
separate from maybe your family, separate from even friends that you've had earlier in your life, separate from rituals and schedules that you've been on as a student or in previous, you know, parts of your life as a child. So I think that doesn't change. You know, I think that throughout uh, different eras, that has been the case. Teachers held philosophical discussions under trees in the park, that kind of thing. This was the farthest you could move almost from waking up at 5 a.m. to brush your teeth with a certain number of strokes. Now, I doubt that they regimented that. I'm being facetious, but um, he stayed by himself in his own rooms for the first time. He discovered cafe life, coming and going as he pleased, drinking and sitting with a newspaper. Sometimes in the afternoons, he'd hole up at a theater. But his heart was Juliet's, and they wrote to one another constantly. On the weekends, he went to see her at her father's house. They were barreling towards a future, strung together with these love letters and these stolen moments behind stairs and things. But he'd always intended on going back to Haiti, was the thing, after school. Juliet had a hard time imagining that kind of move, with concerns about, uh, notably, her aging father. His name was Andre. The news from Haiti seemed to make a decision for them, at least for the time being. In January of 1908, the president was overthrown and forced into exile alongside his minister of the interior, who was Joseph's cousin's husband. There didn't seem to be much to go back to at this juncture, basically. In March 1908, when Juliet was just 19 and Joseph 23, the two married at the Viljuf Church, Yuzali could not make it from Haiti, but sent her best wishes with a request that they try to make it back to Le Cap as soon as they could. The elephant in the room here with their marriage is race, and I don't want to shy away from it. I also don't want it to be an elephant. I want it to just be part of the fabric of what we talk about when we talk about the LaRoches. In the U.S., miscegenation laws... Um, Miscegenation is, you know, a word that was used for, um, you know, mixing races. In in previous centuries, it was called amalgamation. They've been called amalgamation laws. So these laws were almost as old as the United States itself. And of course, they were a direct reflection of the racism and the racial anxieties of the first white colonists and those who came after. The first laws banning interracial marriage were introduced in the colony of Virginia, which was slaveholding, and that, that colony was founded in 1691, and also in the colony of Maryland, founded 1692. But laws banning interracial marriage spread to every colony, and then states, and then eventually even to states that didn't even have slavery any longer, uh, the taboo of interracial relationships was ingrained into the consciousness of this country early. I think that's clear and obvious. And it may seem insane to conceive of now, but until the post-civil rights movement era, most Americans, um, something like 80% <laughs> until the 70s and 80s, claimed to disapprove of a marriage between a white person and a black person. And what you may not know is that the legislation of anti-miscegenation, um, in other words, the codification of laws against it, the creation of, of actual laws against it, is, is really rare globally, save for notably here in the U.S. and in Nazi Germany and in apartheid-era South Africa. That's um, it's pretty intense. So 
I am going to jump ahead <laughs> and let me explain why that's a little bit of blasphemy. So you you probably know about me that I, I do have a PhD in American history from the University of Georgia. What you may not know, I don't talk about it a lot on here, is that what I did study very intensely was the history of the U.S. South from about 1880 to about 1940. And within that, I studied environmental history, labor history, actually even a little bit about uh, music history. It's crazy for me to brush through those years with just a couple of sentences. But in this uh, case, I just have to do that. So it hurts my heart. But I am going to jump ahead to the 1950s and a, a Supreme Court case called Loving v. Virginia that you may have heard of. The plaintiffs in this case were Richard and Mildred Loving, a white man and a black woman whose marriage was deemed illegal in Virginia, but they'd gotten married in D.C. where it was legal at the time. On July 11th, 1958, this is the 50s, this is still the case, just five weeks after their wedding, they were in bed and woken up at 2 a.m. and arrested by the local sheriff. Arrested for who they had married. Ugh. Richard and Mildred were indicted on charges of violating the anti-miscegenation laws, uh, which deemed interracial marriage a felony. (laughs) With the help of the ACLU, though, they appealed to the Supreme Court, which ruled unanimously that these statutes were unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment. So this decision is often cited as a huge, and it is, huge and crucial moment in the ripping away of Jim Crow race laws. When Loving v. Virginia was decided, and that was not until 1967, 16 states still banned mixed marriages. And a century prior, they had been outlawed in half of the states in the union. I couldn't find much information about mixed race marriages in France. And I just want to be, you know, open about that being a blind spot in this episode. But it seems to me from what I could gather and and the connections I can just make as a historian, it probably wasn't that common there either, although probably a little bit more common than here. Uh, but it seemed very likely that the LaRoches would have faced a fair amount of judgment from community members. Honestly, um, across the over 100 years, I can I can feel the emotion of the LaRoche's story, even just through these pages about them that I've read. Dedicated to one another from the start, seemingly immune to the prejudices that might have discouraged others in their situation, they seem by all accounts to have been madly in love and simply unapologetic about their love. They lived with Juliet's father and Joseph set about looking for work. Here, I think, is where it becomes most obvious that his race, while not much of an issue during his education, became a loud clanging in his life as he struck out into the wider world. He had some amount of trouble finding work, but did end up with a short-term contract with one of the companies that held contracts for the Underground Electric Railway what would become Paris's subway system. Joseph was young and new to the job and took copious notes on the line's blueprints. A researcher in the 90s went to the LaRoche home in Villejuif and saw those blueprints, Joseph's handwriting all over them, kept, of course, with reference by the family. Joseph also saw firsthand the plight of those working-class men who quite literally dug into the ground 
to create the system, the the railway system. And he saw that thin line between himself and them. Joseph LaRoche might have come from a fair amount of money, but in France and done with school, he was out on his own attempting to make a living for his family. Work did not come easily. In an interview when she was older, much older, the LaRoche's younger daughter, Louise, did posit that her dad had faced a fair amount of prejudice, that his employers would claim he was too young, too green, pay him less than others, but that race was likely at the bottom of the root of that. Racial prejudice was, sadly, quite common in Europe at the time, just as it was in the U.S. and all over the world. In the fall of 1908, news arrived from Haiti that his father and his grandmother passed away in quite close succession. But the pain and the struggle was overcome with joy when Simone was born, the LaRouche's first daughter, in February of 1909, followed just 17 months later. They're on the Beatles. They were on the Beatles plan. Our kids are 19 months apart. Uh, In July 1910, uh, their second daughter, Louise, who was born in the living room. Actually, both girls were born in the living room in the house uh, in Villejuif. She was premature, Louise was, and in need of medical care, but ultimately fine. News from Haiti the following year, in 1911, uh, was that Joseph's cousin, Josephine Laroche, had taken over a self-professed role as the Queen of Haiti, as her husband, remember, Leconte was his name, led a revolt. Now, this is one of many, many revolts in Haiti over the 19th and early 20th century. Too many to count. The most important takeaway is to remember how intricately Joseph's uh, family is in the politics of uh, how integral Joseph's family is in the politics of Haiti. And I highly encourage you to read more on it. It's just impossible to recount um, every bit of power shifting that was going on at this time. So Joseph, with his family back in power back in Haiti, received a teaching offer at the secondary school back in Le Cap. The decision seemed clear cut. Uh, he wasn't getting good work in Uh, Paris. So this was an amazing opportunity, though Juliet was wary of leaving her father. A third and apparently unexpected pregnancy sped up the timeline, though. Traveling with an infant seemed out of the question, so that would have delayed the trip to Haiti by too much, and the couple wanted the third child to be born in Haiti. As it is so with a lot of Titanic stories, the LaRoche's fate was of an almost not situation. Joseph originally booked passage on the luxury liner, the France, the largest French liner at the time and the fastest of the French liners. Like Titanic, it had four funnels. Called the Versailles of the Sea, it had a two-deck tall dining room with a mezzanine. And it was the dining room that sealed the LaRoche's fate in a way, because once the family heard that on the France, uh, they did not allow children to dine alongside parents in the dining room. They felt lukewarm about that ship and transferred their fares to Titanic, where their children could accompany them in the dining areas. This lines up with what we know about them as a family, modern in their camaraderie, and their desire to be together in an era when so many children were looked after by nannies and staff, primarily. And I should note that they booked in in second class on Titanic, which, as we've talked about before, was actually equivalent in many ways to first class on other liners. On April 10th, 
1912, as Bile writes, Simone, three years old, woke up at dawn to brush her teeth, which if you're a parent or you've ever taken care of kids, you know no child ever rushes to do this unless they're headed somewhere exciting. That morning, the family hired two Renault motor cars, the kind that started with crank handles, 21-month-old Louise and her mother in one, and Joseph and Simone in the other, and they journeyed from Villejuif to the St. Lazare train station. Once at the station, Simone tried to run ahead and her father called for her in Creole, something reserved for when she was acting rambunctious. Two trains for Titanic. This is, you know, this is the part that um, doesn't really, I think it's, it's mentioned a lot in prefaces of books kind of thing, but the journey of families to get to Titanic um, from where they started, because obviously Titanic is leaving from Southampton or Cherbourg or Queenstown. So you have to get to one of those spots in order to get on her. And there are, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there are people who board Titanic from Germany, from Syria, from Bulgaria, all over the world. And I think, gosh, I'm just in real time thinking that would be an incredible episode if I could find some sources on just different families and how they got to Southampton or Cherbourg or Queenstown. Because I'm sure in many cases that was a, you know, days and maybe in some cases even weeks long journey to get to that point. Just as the LaRoches were you know, starting their trip by going Cherbourg to New York. And then they would, of course, have to go to Haiti. So this was to be the first leg of their journey. A lot of people on Titanic, Titanic was the last leg of their journey because New York was the destination and they'd started, say, for example, in Syria. So there were two trains that morning, 7.45 a.m., carrying 103 third-class passengers, and at 9.45 a.m., 161 first- and second-class passengers on a train into Cherbourg. On the train, they befriended a couple named Albert and Anthony Mallet, a French couple who lived in Canada. Albert worked importing cognac from Paris and would take his wife and young son along when he had the opportunity on these trips. No doubt, <laughs> the appearance of La Roche on that train was probably extraordinary for some. This would have been a train of white faces and very, very, very wealthy faces. You know, someone like Margaret Brown, she boarded at Cherbourg. Uh, many of them were used to not sharing accommodations with Black passengers. Very few Black people traveled on transatlantic liners. And when they did, they were more often than not in third class. I'm not entirely sure what sources Bilay has for what I'm about to speak about. Like I mentioned, uh, his his sources and, and his paragraphs just weren't footnoted in a traditional sense. But he writes about how Malay and his family described the chemistry between Juliet and Joseph. And, and this must have been from an account from Antony after the ship sank. She did survive. Her husband, Andre, did not. Was it Andre? Albert... There's a lot of A names. Andre is Juliet's dad. So Albert is uh, part of the French couple here. But the French couple described how, you know, Juliet and Joseph really moved in perfect time with one another, how proud they were of one another, how obvious that was. And remember, this is a time when interracial marriage was frowned upon by many openly, by most even, I would say. But their love and their commitment to one another seems immediately apparent 
even to this couple they'd just met. Juliet held her belly proudly. Uh, Belay relates this. I imagine he has a source, I hope, (laughs) and uh, seemed to be open about their news of another baby on the way. The train made its way to Cherbourg, where the LaRoches and everyone else, obviously, boarded the ferry on the Nomadic. Now, the Nomadic still lives. (laughs) It is, I believe, one of the, maybe the only White Star Line ship still in its complete form, Uh, but it does live in Belfast, at Titanic Belfast, and it is a great, great goal of mine to get over to Belfast sometime in the next year or two. I'm very hopeful, and uh, getting on the Nomadic is, (laughs) is a big dream of mine. The Nomadic was a tender. It was launched in April of 1911. And she, along with traffic, which was the other tender, was used to ferry passengers back and forth. And what I've always thought, and and back and forth because there was not room at Cherbourg for Titanic to dock. So they would have to meet out in the (laughs) the ocean. That sounds so, that is just... (sighs) That is someone who doesn't know naval terms describing things, obviously, and I'm sorry. Uh, I will say some some trivia about the Nomadic, too, is that the interior of it was actually designed uh, very meticulously and was very ornate, just like the interior of, you know, first and second class on Titanic, because there was this idea of continuity, right? That you get on the Nomadic, you're not on Titanic yet, or the Olympic, or whichever ship it might be. But you immediately are overtaken by the aura of these White Star Line luxury vessels, the paneling, the lighting, the staircases. So the White Star Line very purposely wanted you to immediately feel as if you were entering another world and there would be that line of continuity of space uh, and decor into the ship when you boarded it. So like I mentioned, the LaRoches were in second class on board Titanic. We actually haven't talked a lot about second class on the podcast yet. If you are a Patreon member or thinking about becoming one, the bonus episode that's going to post um, this next week is actually going to be about some second class passengers. So um, I've been, you know, with this LaRoche research and then for researching that, I've been sort of dipping my toes into second class life, which I haven't really done before. It's a big gap for me. And it's obviously a big gap in a lot of the books and movies. So maybe I could work to remedy that. But second class, you know, was was upper middle class. It was professors, teachers, authors, clergymen, tourists that were just you know, middle-class families from Britain or America. Um, The entrance to the second-class dining room was not as magnificent as the first-class grand staircase, but the dining saloon was still beautiful and luxurious, and they had a library and a smoking room and access to a lot of the uh, luxury spaces on board the liner. And the food was, you should look up, I, I definitely recommend looking up some menus to sort of juxtapose against, like first against second class, second class, obviously, um, against third class. If you listen to my early, very early in the pod episode with Veronica Hinky about dining and drinking on Titanic, we talk about the menus, we talk about the differences. If you're a new listener and you haven't heard that episode, please dip back and listen to that one. Veronica was really gracious very, very early on in the podcast life to come on. She was my very first guest. 
and I still communicate with her on Instagram. We've stayed in touch. She's fantastic. And I have heard from several listeners that they have ordered her book, which is the last night on the Titanic, you know, made the food, made some of the cocktails. So that episode really continues to, um, I think, get people excited about researching some of the food and drink. So I highly recommend that. Anyway, so, but the, the food was in second class was less, uh, a little less, I think three or four courses versus, you know, the 12, gosh, is it 12 courses in first class? 10. I think it was 10. So the La Roches were impressed by their surroundings because second class was a gorgeous environment as well. Joseph called their cabin an apartment and that was on uh, their cabin was on F deck. It had beautiful furniture, double sink, sofa bed for the children, the bunks for Joseph and Juliet. This had cost the family a little over 41 pounds, converted to dollars and then adjusted for inflation. That would be about $1,600 now. And the next thing I want to address is a little tricky to address because quite frankly, there aren't really any sources. And that is this question of overt racism on board Titanic and what the experience for the LaRoches was as an interracial couple in second class on the ship, um, as Joseph LaRoche's place as the only documented black man on that ship. And there's no way to know. This may be viewed as a pessimistic, um, <laughs> a, a pessimistic viewpoint, but I think from what we know of the era and the time and society, I think undoubtedly they probably were the subject of conversations and some amount of racist dialogue among passengers. But because it was second class and polite society, it probably went on behind closed doors, would be my guess. The one mention that we have of them from just randomly from a letter is from a woman named Kate Buss, who is in second class. And I don't mean to imply that what I'm about to read from her is malicious, but it is indicative, unfortunately, of racial perceptions at the time. She wrote back to her family about seeing kids playing on deck and said there are, quote, two absolutely lovely Japanese girls about three or four years old looking like dolls and running everywhere. So she mistook the LaRoche girls for Japanese passengers. But speaking of letters, we do also have a letter that Juliet wrote to her father that she posted at, I believe, Queenstown before they, before the ship left land for the last time headed for New York. And I'm going to read some of it. It's to her father, Andre. And they seem to have felt at home But to note, at this point, when she's writing this letter, they've only been on the ship for about a day. So here we go. Here's a little bit of an excerpt from Juliet's letter as well. Dear Papa, I just learned that we will stop shortly. I am taking advantage of this fact to write you a few lines and give you news of us. We embarked on the Titanic last evening at 7 p.m., Oh, if only you could see this monster. Our tug looked like a fly next to it, and the interior could not be more comfortable. We have two bunks in our cabin, and the girls are laying on a sofa turned into a bed, one at the head, the other at the foot, with a plank in the front so they will not fall. They are as well, if not better, than in their own bed. The ship started up while we were dining, and we could not believe it was moving. 
It shakes less than a train. One hardly feels any vibration. The girls ate well last evening. They slept in one stretch the whole night and were awoken by the bells announcing breakfast. Those made Louise laugh. Right now they are walking on the covered deck with Joseph. Louise in her small car and Simone pushing her. They have already made acquaintances. Since Paris, we have traveled with a gentleman and a lady and their little boy, and that's the Malays, who is the same age as Louise. I believe they are the only French on board. So we sit at the same table, and like this, we can chat. Simone amused me earlier. She was playing with an English girl who had lent her a doll. My Simone was having great conversation, but the little girl could not understand anything. People are very nice on board. Yesterday, they were both running after a gentleman who had given them chocolate so there we go think about the amazing uh, interaction of those two sources that we have kate bus who didn't know the laroches writing in her letter about these two girls that she sees playing with dolls and then juliet mentioning that her daughters were the two girls playing on deck with dolls and that's a you know as a historian it gives me chills it gives me goosebumps as a historian there oh gosh i'm like near tears thinking about that i am it's, it's very rare as a historian, as a researcher or writer of any kind that two sources line up like that and really give you a true glimpse into a moment in a place and a time that you're trying to evoke, trying to understand, trying to study. So I think that's kind of amazing. But it does speak to some of the racial perceptions of the time. But, you know, Julia does seem really happy on board and... She seems to feel comfortable. So, you know, in as a source, a letter like that's pretty, pretty amazing and direct primary source. So I think across the time and ages, we should also listen to Juliet. And she's telling us that she was happy on board Titanic. Surely, though, in terms of other thoughts, <laughs> Joseph had anxiety about returning to Haiti. But undoubtedly, the family enjoyed the voyage uh, from the letter. We can sort of get a glimpse of what their daily activities were like. And he, you know, must have felt, Bile points this out, and I 100% agree, he must have felt some relief knowing that they were headed somewhere that they would not be othered for their relationship. The race mixing was anchored, as Bile points it, into the country's DNA in Haiti. On the Sunday, April 14th, 1912, the family went to mass in the second class saloon, and it was presided over by Father Thomas Biles, a British vicar on his way to Brooklyn, and also by Father Montvilla, a Lithuanian priest, and Father Parishitz, a German priest, and they... Um, I think the two of them might have been hearing confession. The rest of their day is a bit lost to history for the La Roches, but we can't imagine that the girls played on the deck. They might have done some walking uh, to burn off the heavy meals, as many people did on board. That's well documented. But the air was getting colder outside. We know by 6 p.m. they were at dinner, as usual, with the Malays. When the steward... and. <sighs> Malay, M-A-L-L-E-T, I think I'm pronouncing it right. That's the other French couple. I don't think it's Mallet. Is it? Oh, I have, here's the thing. I have listeners in France. I know I do. I see it on my data. So I apologize sincerely for messing up any of these pronunciations. And I genuinely, genuinely ask of you if, if you, if you have the time and you want to correct me on this and let me know. 
please do. All right. So when the steward knocked on their door in the middle of that night, he told them right away to put on life belts and get on deck. Now, some accounts of stewards the night of the sinking are of them sort of falsely reassuring people, you know, whether they they may have believed themselves it was it was not much of a threat still, or they may have just been trying to make people feel better. But I have read a lot of accounts of stewards downplaying what's going on at this point in the evening still. But that's not the case here. Joseph knew the danger right away. Their steward communicated it right away. And he sprung into action alongside Juliet, stashing their valuables. They put money, jewelry into pockets frenetically. Joseph struggled with Louise in his arms. Uh, He had sent Juliet and Simone ahead, and they got briefly separated on their way to a lifeboat. So Joseph is struggling with Louise in his arms. She was very nearly suffocated by the push of of the crowd. In the LaRoche recounting, it seems clear that the panic had set in in the area, at least around the launching of their lifeboat, which we believe to be lifeboat eight, and that this image we have of a tearful, tranquil, emotive set of goodbyes on deck is perhaps fodder only for movies. What actually happened is that Joseph elbowed and kneed men around him shouting, working desperately to get his youngest daughter down to her mother and sister. He begged, he shouted until a sailor finally understood what was going on. Joseph yelled, as I mentioned in the opening to this episode, see you soon, my love. There will be space for everyone in the boats Take care of our little girls. See you soon. Another goodbye from a deck, 11 years after leaving Le Cap and watching his mother disappear into the horizon. But not really a goodbye at all. Not a proper one. There is a lot written about first-class males who stayed on board at the end, but honestly, I feel like sometimes the evidence isn't really there. That they stood back more that we assume that they did. We assume the nobility. We forget the fear and the panic. Most of them did probably stare that fear down and see their ends with a sense of sacrifice and courage. I'm not questioning that. But in the case of LaRoche, we know he did. We have the scene, the story of it relayed by the woman who loved him and had to let him go. Joseph LaRoche, last seen on the deck above lifeboat eight, made sure his children and his wife were safe. And then he stepped back. Juliet later recounted that when they asked about news from the officers on Carpathia, they were told that other ships might have gone by their wreck and might be picking up other survivors. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, and I'm sure we'll talk about it again, but there was uh, some amount of a sense of false hope aboard Carpathia that other survivors were on other ships. I think it's, you know, James Cameron even filmed a deleted scene where... Wait, no, it's in the movie. It's in the movie when Cal goes down to look for Rose in steerage on Carpathia. And there is a woman off to the side asking a steward if there's another ship that they could uh, look on. So the first recollections of April 15th, 1912, in terms of uh, the family, Louise and Simone and Juliet, and when they spoke about it later in life, was being hauled up in the bags. You know, they had the canvas bags that they hauled especially children up onto Carpathia from. Simone remembered how frightening it was, and that image stayed with her and haunted her her whole life. Of course it did. Juliet apparently 
uh, at one point reported that some of their valuables were stolen on board the Carpathia. Uh, She also lost her wedding ring at some point. She had given it to Joseph to hold at some point during the journey. It sounds like she had lost some weight in the early part of her pregnancy and it kept sliding off her finger, but she did lose, sadly, her wedding ring. She found... Antony, and I, by the way, I've also seen her name as Antoinette, so I guess Antony for short, uh, Malay. She had survived with her son Andre, but she had lost her husband too. They do find each other on the Carpathia uh, suddenly in this common ordeal of being widows. I did read something interesting about the Carpathia I'd never heard before too in terms of Juliet, which is that there was a lack of linens available, which, you know, isn't surprising. Suddenly there are 700 and something more people on board than the Carpathia was meant to hold. And Juliet needed them for diapers for the baby. So she would have to sit on napkins and hide them and squirrel them away at meals. And then she would use those for the diapers. Um, Juliet didn't really, and this isn't surprising either. She's, you know, in the middle of this trauma and being loaded into the lifeboat, as she describes, was such a traumatic and quick and unbelievable experience that she doesn't really remember much about the lifeboat. We know she was in eight because she recounts being in a boat with the Countess, and that would be the Countess of Rothes. So, oh, and she also remembers that the bottom of the boat was icy. She was taken to St. Vincent Hospital when they arrived in New York. She was treated for frostbite on her feet. And from there, the family stayed temporarily at a hotel and then headed back to France on the liner called the Chicago. Juliet did not think it would be a good idea to head to Haiti without Joseph. She headed back to France to be with her father. There's a newspaper account of of Juliet and the girls. So remember, this is news. And so they would have been news. And there's a newspaper account in a local paper of them arriving back in France. And I want to read that. At the arrival of the liner, you could notice an old man in morning clothes looking anxiously at the disembarking passengers on the dock. It was Mrs. LaRoche's father who had come to Paris to welcome his daughter and two granddaughters for their sad return to French soil. When Mrs. LaRoche and her two daughters appeared on the gangway, the old man ran to them and father and daughter hugged for a long time, teary-eyed. Mrs. LaRoche then recounted that at the time of the catastrophe, she and her two little girls had been forced to leave her husband behind. He tried to reassure her, affirming that he would be rescued like her only a little later. Crying, the poor woman repeated several times, I believed him. I believed him. Otherwise, I would have never agreed to leave him. I think, guys, I think this is uh, <laughs> this is maybe the most emotional that I've ever been when recording an episode. Um, I think, you know, I have, I have two kids. <laughs> so maybe that's part of it, but feeling very emotional recording this episode. On May 24th, Juliet held a service in Villejuif. A large crowd assembled and she passed out souvenir cards with a picture of her husband. That July, he was also remembered at the General Assembly of the Alumni Association of his old school in Pouvay. In Le Cap, Yuzali grieved, of course, first for her son and then for his uncle, Le Conte, when his palace was blown up in Port-au-Prince. A few hours later, Joseph LaRoche's uncle, a man named Tancrede Auguste, was elected the president of the republic. 
On December 17th, 1912, Juliet gave birth to a healthy baby boy who she named, of course she did, Joseph. But the family struggled financially as her father's business waned during World War I. He urged his daughter to apply for compensation from the White Star Line, which she did, and reportedly with the money she received opened a dry cleaning business that sustained the family. She did meet with another survivor, uh, Edith Russell, either Edith Rosenbaum Russell, who <laughs> I really want to do an episode on at some point, uh, not only because her story on Titanic is interesting, but also because her persona as a survivor is very interesting. There are so many interviews of her on YouTube from the 50s and the 60s. Please go watch them. I think if I do an episode on Edith, it will probably center around not necessarily the moments on Titanic, but uh, the relationship we have to survivor narratives and these survivor interviews that were really popular, you know, in the wake of A Night to Remember and that sort of thing. So, and she is featured in A Night to Remember. So, uh, Julia does meet with Edith, Ru- Edith Russell, who invited her and the children to the Claridge Hotel in Paris every April. April 15th, for a number of years, she would receive a gift from Miss Russell, such as perfume or chocolate. She also kept up with um, Anthony Millay for a while, but apparently all of these interactions eventually sort of drifted away. Yuza Lee did finally get to meet her grandchildren in 1920. She finally makes it to Paris. But according to a Titanic Historical Society article that I read... And I'll talk about it in a minute, but the Titanic Historical Society did, in the 90s, end up talking quite extensively with Louise LaRoche, who was still alive at the time. Uh, But the sources there claim that the meeting did not go well, and that usually felt very much like a stranger, which she was. (laughs) And uh, I don't think on either end of things, things were um, felt very, very great in that meeting. So I from what I read, she did not visit again. Some sources claim that Yuza Lee took care of Joseph's half-brother. This was his half-brother from his late father, from Joseph's late father, a boy called Carlette, and that she channeled her grief for her son, at least partly, into taking care of his brother. And it's always awkward to it's always awkward to start ending an episode and sort of listing off what happened to who. I don't mean it to sound like a laundry list. I really don't. I'm just trying to cover everything. And I also want to talk a little bit more about race and Titanic just here at the end, too. Because there's also this really intriguing component of Black memory and the creation of culture about the ship in Black culture in America via folktales. And there are two sort of tall tales that emerge in the Black community out of the tragedy. And the first involved an actual person, the boxer Jack Johnson. And then the second one was about a mythical character named Sean, who in the tall tale was the, and this is all fictional, was the lone Black survivor who miraculously survived by swimming across the rest of the Atlantic to New York. So Johnson's and Shine's stories proliferated uh, in dozens and maybe even hundreds of toasts. And if you don't know, toasts in the Black community were narrative poems. And so they proliferated in these toasts and songs and were really popular 
in Black culture, almost like a processing of the disaster by boasting that they had not been on the ship and therefore not perished. The Johnson tale was this, basically, that the, the you know, this famous prize fighter of the day, who had been vilified, by the way, for his white wives for being married to white women was supposed to have been on the Titanic and would have been had the captain not spotted him at the door and barred him because he was black. So that's how this tall tale goes. And of course, Johnson wasn't even in (laughs) Southampton or anywhere near where the Titanic sailed. He was in the United States at the time. And Henry Louis Gates Jr. has pointed out in an article on The Root that this all makes sense, though, because Johnson fit the narrative. He could have afforded the ticket. He was as famous as any other man on board, and he was black. In fact, the very year Johnson found his way into a folk song made by the great bluesman Huddy William Ledbetter, better known as Leadbelly. He called it Titanic, and in his last sessions recorded in New York City in 1948, he explained how he and Blind Lemon Jefferson used to sing it differently depending on who was in the audience on any given night. But to Leadbelly, according to what he said, he viewed it as, quote, a true story. (laughs) And he said it was the first song I learned to play on a 12-string guitar in 1912. So that shows how immediate these immediately these songs were, you know, becoming part of you know, black culture, folklore culture, oral tradition. I'll just share some of the lyrics. Jack Johnson wanted to get on board. Captain, he says, I ain't hauling no coal. Fare thee, Titanic, fare thee well. Jack Johnson, so glad he didn't get on there. When he heard about that mighty shock, might have seen the man turn the eagle rock. Fare thee, Titanic, fare thee well. And the key to this legend was that it it sort of reinforced what many Black people in America were feeling, which is even someone like Jack Johnson would have been snubbed and turned away from Titanic And as Stephen Beale has pointed out, boasting about not being near a site of tragedy was really common in Black folk music around this time, before and after Titanic. It was the creation of power, and it was processing. And this is really important because Black people in the United States were fighting every minute of the day, every, every minute of the day, an uphill battle against prejudice and... So the creation of that narrative was really culturally crucial at that moment. And actually even more popular was the second tall tale about the man named Shine. Now, the name Shine, a lot of historians believe, may have originated as sort of a catch-all name that came from how some white people used to insult um, dark-complexioned Black people, and, and the name Shine was used, unfortunately, in that derogatory way, so that may be the origin of the name. But in the legend, um, in this legend, this Shine turns out to be sort of a badass, you know, hero of, of the night. Uh, Shine was not turned away, but instead hired to shovel coal down in the boiler room. In the tale, he is the first one to notify the captain of a problem. So he is astute and he then swims across the rest of the Atlantic to make it to New York and survive the, be the black survivor of the Titanic. Now, just to note, there are a few, let's call them 
less savory parts of the story. And this is pretty typical of these types of tales, including when he gets to New York and he goes straight to a bar and then to a brothel. <laughs> um, I think it's crucial, but that just, that leads me to another thought, which is that I think it's crucial to remember that something that's culturally important doesn't have to be necessarily clean or whitewashed or what our modern sensibilities deem appropriate. It doesn't, the past doesn't owe us that. I think it's important to remember. And I think, you know, this is, this is off this is off script completely, but as I'm talking to you about these two tall tales that developed in Black culture, this uh, Black culture's processing of the Titanic disaster, obviously, they're, as a culture, they're looking for a Black man on the Titanic. They're trying to locate the legend of a Black man on the Titanic that they think doesn't exist, but there was a Black man on the Titanic. They just didn't know it at the time, which is that's pretty incredible to think about that the story was there. Joseph LaRoche was there. So um, neither LaRoche daughter ever married Simone or Louise. The three women were scarred irrevocably by what had happened. Louise has commented on how her mother seemed quite eternally sad and understandably so. Yuzali died in Haiti in 1952. Simone died in 1973. In 1980, Juliette died, and her tomb bears the inscription, Wife of Joseph LaRoche, Missing at Sea from the RMS Titanic since 1912. And you read that, and you have to wonder if a part of her never processed it, if a part of her still saw him out there in that ocean waiting for her. In 1987, Joseph Jr. died, but Louise lived until 1998. She was one of the longest living survivors. She was a member of the Titanic Historical Society from 1963 at its inception until her death in 1998. They had trouble communicating with her, though, because she only ever spoke French. But then a member of the THS named Oliver Mendez, who spoke French and English, went to France to interview her and talk to her. And so there was finally a breakthrough. And uh, that article was published in an edition of The Commutator, which is uh, the magazine, the kind of journal that comes out of THS. I couldn't find the back issue. So I have not accessed this article directly myself. I've only read excerpts that other people have published in other places, but I am still working to get my hands on some old copies of The Commutator. So anyway, tangent. But uh, so any excerpts I'm sharing are just from other sources that I found from articles online. Um, so this is a little excerpt. After opening the gate, and this is from Oliver Mendez, the um, THS member. After opening the gate, she waved me in and added, quote, please walk upstairs before me. I am slow in walking. On the stairs, I asked, how are you doing? And she replied, oh, not too well. I broke my arm a year ago and it tired me a lot. I became old within a few weeks. Her sister-in-law, Madame Claudine LaRoche, joined us. She is the family genealogist and was able to answer questions about the family covering a century. So this is just a little you know, snippet from his time at the LaRoche house. In April of 1996, Louise was at Cherbourg. 84 years after she boarded the tender nomadic from these docks, she stood on them again in a black coat, clutching a black bag. She was there to unveil a plaque dedicated to the 281 passengers who headed to Titanic 
from that spot. And Ed Kamuda, who was the founder of the THS, he was actually there that day. She talked about her father as a hero, that that was what was what gave her comfort over the many, many, many years of her life without him, that he was a hero. And he was. And this breaks open the white first class male hero narrative a bit as well, which I absolutely adore. Her mother had the hardest time um, and could barely speak of what had happened, she said. She raised her daughters, Louise recounted, with an obsessive fear of travel, which also I completely and 100% understand. Uh, There was an exhibit that traveled in the United States starting at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry in the year 2000 that had uh, like an interactive play about the LaRoche family. But interestingly enough, the woman who portrayed Juliet was Black. So that's a potentially, you know, problematic interpretation of their story. Later in life, Louise also met up with another French survivor, Michelle Navratil. And if you don't know the story of the Navratil boys on Titanic, (laughs) I mean, after this episode, just Google it immediately. It is uh, quite the story. I will be doing an episode at some point later this year. A lot of great sources. And in short, basically, two very young boys and they did survive the disaster, but their father had them on board because he was kidnapping them from their mother. And she didn't know they were even on the ship. They survived. He did not. And she actually only found out where her children were from reading a newspaper article, I think a couple of weeks later. And then she obviously hightailed it to the United States to get her children. But Michelle Navratil and Louise LaRoche actually met up with one another for the first time since they played on the decks together in 1912. And I'm not sure if that would have been on the Titanic or on the Carpathia, but I read in several sources that they had, that there was evidence they had met when they were, you know, children in 1912. But for the first time, they met up again in 1995. And they also were joined by Melvina Dean, who was the longest living survivor of Titanic because she was just a baby when um, she was on the ship. I believe she was six weeks old. So in 1995, there is this moment in Paris, France, where you have Louise and Michelle and Melvina Dean, and they and there's pictures online. Uh, you can view pictures of this meetup, but they reunite. And what a, I was thinking about this, what an odd club to be in. I mean, one you'd never want to be in, but if you must be in it, even nine decades later at that point, it must be some amount of comfort in that situation to meet with others who have experienced the precise type of grief that you have. Losing a parent that way, knowing that they watched from the deck, watched you leave and would never see you again. Louise boarded the nomadic again, actually, at this point, all those years later, And she poses with Melvina. She holds hand with Michelle, hands with Michelle. And she maybe, you know, in 1995, who's who's to know what was going on in her head? But maybe there was some amount of closure to meet with those people who had such a parallel experience. And maybe that was some closure for her. Also, she was known to have kept a picture of her father, Joseph, in her purse. Every day of her life. 
Can you imagine the leap from being a baby in 1912 on Titanic on the cusp of modernity to living into the 90s when you, <laughs> you know, I mean, still the early days of, of the internet and of, um, you know, computers, of, of technology really being able to do what it does now, but she lived long enough to see the beginning of that and to see the Titanic Historical Society on its mission of reuniting survivors and commemorating. And anyway, it's a lot to think about. And I didn't really know how to end this episode in terms of the LaRoche family. It's it's gut-wrenching. It's heartbreaking. I There's nothing I can say that would close up this narrative except just to say that it's a gut punch and that this family didn't really get to say goodbye, (laughs) Uh, which is why I titled the episode what I did. I did just want to say one more little last bit about Haiti, and I encourage you to read up on its history and its relationship with the United States. When the United States occupied Haiti from 1915 to 1934 and changing Haiti's constitution and contributing in many ways to its ongoing upheaval and instability. Many African-Americans denounced this and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, wrote a series of letters for the nation denouncing this injustice. In 1932, poet Langston Hughes traveled to Haiti, and in his autobiography, which came out in 1956, he described his trip to Haiti and his meeting with Haitian intellectuals at the time. So before there were these, you know, very current conceptions we have about you know, Black national consciousness and transnationalism, that these types of exchanges were already going on between African-Americans and Haitians. It's important to know. And and the history of Haiti is, as I mentioned early, in terms of the history of slavery and, and, and the global slave trade, so integral to our understanding of the history of race and the history of our own struggles <laughs> in this country. So it's, I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. And I, I had never read much beyond the basics of Haitian history. And I found myself up at one o'clock in the morning, <laughs> going down different rabbit holes, because it is moving and interesting. And again, I highly recommend that you do some reading if you are interested in this history at all. Also, there are so many ties that link Haiti and Louisiana in terms of food culture, language, architecture, religion. I'm from Louisiana originally. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that. From Shreveport, Louisiana. The north part. It's not the fun. It's not like New Orleans. But so this part's interesting to me and it makes me want to read more on that too. So anyway, just just ending with saying there's a lot to unlock here. And if you are someone who enjoys history. And of course you are, you wouldn't be here otherwise, then this is definitely an avenue to walk down. All right. (laughs) That one was a heartbreaking, a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, Those, you know, heartbreaking and beautiful can coexist, but it was, I enjoyed researching it. Gosh, I feel like a little bit in a daze. Um, Thank you for listening as always. I would like to thank my newest Patreon members. I cannot express to you how much it means 
that you have taken the time and that you are investing in the podcast in this way. It is incredibly meaningful. So I would like to thank Christopher Lohman, new VIP Unsinkable member. And I would like to thank Mitchell Buckley. Thank you guys so very much. I think I've said thank you 18 times (laughs) and I'll say it 18 more. All right. Book club episodes coming up. Hazel Gaynor. It's a great interview. I've already done it. It's wonderful. I'm sitting on it. (laughs) You're going to get it in March, but Hazel Gaynor in a couple of weeks for March Book Club, The Girl Who Came Home, which is a historical fiction. And then in April, Ben Rain's The Last Slave Ship. And that will coincide with my doing a special side episode on the story of the Clotilda and the shipwreck of the Clotilda. I have a bookshop page where you can purchase these books if you want to do so through there. It supports independent booksellers and supports the pod. And that link will be in the show notes. So definitely prep for the book club episodes. Those, like I mentioned, I think I mentioned it last week. Those are incredibly popular. Honestly, my some of my most popular episodes so far. So I definitely plan on keeping doing those. And I am always open to suggestions. If you have books that you would like me to cover, authors that you'd like me to try to get in touch with. I've been so lucky. Authors are coming on the pod being so gracious with their time. And it's amazing and wonderful. And I think, I mean, I know I'm enjoying these conversations and I'm hearing from a lot of you that you are enjoying them as well. Heading into March, I will still be releasing new episodes because I am prepping them and having them ready ahead of time. But in March, I will be traveling for um, quite a bit of it with my family. Well, fingers crossed that COVID continues to get better and that our plans are actually... Uh, we're able to live them out. Uh, so yeah, I will be just not as readily available for a big chunk of March. So if you email or, you know, Instagram or Patreon message, that kind of thing, I just, I may not be, you know, as on top of getting back to you and, and responding to feedback and that sort of thing in March as I typically am, but I promise I will catch up towards the end of March. And also at the end of March, Zoom meetups on Patreon for the VIP tier. So if you are considering becoming a Patreon member, uh, that will start in late March. Also, I think at some point soon, I might unlock one bonus episode, maybe the first one that's been on there for a while. Just so if you are on the fence about becoming a Patreon member, you can hear what a typical bonus episode is like, and that might help in your decision. But that address, by the way, is patreon.com backslash unsinkablepod. As always, contact me. It is unsinkablepod at gmail.com on Twitter or Instagram. It's unsinkablepod. And guys, the download numbers are out of this world. I thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And if you're a new listener, welcome. Uh, If you are enjoying the podcast, consider taking a moment to rate and review on either Apple or Spotify. Those reviews, I hate to ask, and I know it's, I know it's kind of weird to ask, but those reviews and ratings really help the visibility of the podcast. And the more the podcast becomes visible and the more listeners I get, the more I'll be able to do on the pod in the future. I feel like in terms of research, in terms of travel, I really want to do some episodes that involve some travel. So anyway, I have so much that I want to do and I am so excited that the podcast continues to grow. And um, yeah, that would be a way that you could definitely help it continue on that path. All right. Have a wonderful 
rest of your day if it's day or evening if it's evening. Cheers. And I will catch you soon. I will be back with book club episode in early March. And then also we have the interview with the education executive from the Titanic Museum attraction. Great interview I did with him. That's coming up in your feed in the next couple of weeks as well. So bye for now. See ya.